This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I stopped and I said, I want you to appreciate the privilege that you have living in New York City, where you make the assumption that coming out in community exists in the same space, because they don't. That voice you heard was Tyel Hayes, SVP of Brand Strategy and Marketing for BET. His job is making sure that the network meets his business objectives while also staying true to itself and, more importantly, its audience. It's a tremendous responsibility because you are being entrusted with not only representing Black culture, but advocating for it in spaces that historically Black voices have not been heard. Having an openly gay Black man be entrusted with this level of visible responsibility is not unprecedented. After all, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. entrusted Bayard Rustin, who was openly gay, with organizing the march in Washington. But that didn't mean everybody liked it. Representative Adam Clayton Powell was able to use homophobia to force Bayer Rustin out of the movement in 1960. When Bayer was brought back into the fold in 1963, Senator Strom Thurmond attacked Rustin for being gay on the Senate floor, saying the march was being organized by a, quote, pervert. Today, instead of pervert, elected officials say words like groomer or purposely misgender. As the documentary, We Were There, The March in Washington shows, it's all the same ish, just a different decade. The senator is interested in attacking me because he is interested in destroying the movement. He will not get away with this. On this episode of Life Out Loud, we talk with Tyell about that long-standing trope about homophobia in the black community and how that impacts his life and his family's. Speaking of family... Wait until you hear the emotional journey he and his husband went on to grow theirs and what it takes for them to protect it. Afterwards, I check with Family Equality CEO Stacey Stevenson about what they did to protect their family. They also share tips on how you can better protect yours. But first, Tyel and I talk about being black and queer, our kids, and eating some pancakes. I want to start off this conversation by giving you an example of something that I experienced as a father. And I'm just curious if you've had a similar sort of experience or or contemplation or crossroads, if you will. We were going school clothes shopping in Brooklyn one day, and I knew walking into a store by the energy of the person at the cash register that that was not going to be a pleasant experience for my son and I. You know, it was something in the way that, that she looked at me. It was something in the way that her nose kind of crinkled. And I told my son, hey, let's go to a different store. And he says, oh, but I really want to go into here. I want to see this. Da, da, da. So I was like, okay, fine, let's go in. And sure enough, as we're walking through the store, the security guard's following us up and down every aisle to the point at which my son noticed and said something. Why is he following us? And it broke my heart because I realized in that moment that no matter how hard I tried, I could never protect him from the world. I could only teach him about the world. And so my first question to you, you know, as a father, as a black man, as a gay man in America, is have you had a similar encounter yet with your children? And if so, how did you handle it? Well, wow, that's a, that's a very wonderfully complex question. And I, I want to answer it by giving a little context first. Okay. I think for me, our... Our story to fatherhood has come through adoption. Mm-hmm. And they're from two separate birth mothers in two separate states. My daughter is biracial and she is very fair skinned with blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm. And my son 
is, you know, chocolate brown with like, you know, black curly hair. Gotcha. So by definition, when you see us and I'm chocolate with locks. So visually, we're like when you see us, there's like, a, oh, hmm, something's different here. Right. We we break the, the norm of what people are used to. And I, I'll answer it through the, through that lens. I think there's a lot of norm breaking that causes some dissonance with people when they interact with my family. And it causes me to be on edge a lot. So I have a, I've had a lot of those situations. So you can imagine my daughter's older. She's three years older than her brother. Um, me being alone with her in a store when she was little mm. was very challenging because you would see what, what to the average person in a, in a quick sweep could look like, oh, yeah, who's this black man with this little white baby? Right. So, you're, so there, there were multiple times where I've had issues of safety where I felt like I needed to assert authority to prevent a question or to prevent an action. And my most memorable one is she's, she's two in, and we're in a big box store okay. and she's running horizontally across the aisle and I go to chase her. And as she runs out, I see a woman who's, who's white, look at her and smile like, oh, look at that cute little baby running and then see me and her face immediately changes. Hmm. And it's really interesting that those those moments happen often where you have those. And that's where I say the dissonance is very present for me as a dad. Right. I think in in, in, in all black spaces. Similarly, I think there is a narrative out there um, that black fathers aren't very present. So I often think that sometimes even with my son alone, there's an there's a dissonance because people are like, oh, where's the mom? Right. Like the dad's not here by itself. Not knowing whether he's my natural born child, adopted child, sir, or whatever, there's a, there's a level of dissonance that is created. And I then have to live in the reaction of that. And my job as a parent is to answer your question very directly. I am ever present of when the dissonance is coming. I often, I used to spend a lot of time trying to predict when it will come and how do I mitigate it right. and reduce it so that way they can just be kids and not have to like, deal with these challenges that are, you know, that we deal with as adults, as black men, as gay men, as black gay men moving through society. You know, it, I hear you 1000% and I cannot agree with you more in terms of like the diligence that's sort of required. But aren't you tired sometimes too? Like, don't you just want to like, just be a dad with <laughs> your cousin and your kids just go to the store? <laughs> yes, I just want to... I just want to go to Costco. Like, yes, yes. And so it, it's like, but if you bring it up, right, that when you do these things and you have these experiences, now you're whining, right? Or you're, you yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. But at the same time, yes. the prejudice of society has a direct impact on your parenting. Yes, yes. And it's, it's interesting, the thing I'm often hit with, like when I express any level of frustration about it or a, a desire to have it go away is, I my favorite response from others is, well, we all have problems. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> all lives yeah, matter. Yes, we all do. All lives matter. We all 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 dads have problems. Yes, yes, we do. However, I'm, I live in a very distinct intersection of both my own makeup, my husband who's Puerto Rican makeup, my children, and we. So we it is a lot to digest when we get out of the car and walk into a restaurant. It's a lot, and I can see people as we walk from a restaurant counter. I live in Jersey, so we eat a lot of, at a lot uh -huh. of diners. So when you walk, you can almost see the people looking in the restaurant like, wait, who, who, are, who are they? Really trying to figure us all out. Because when it's just the four of us, it's really challenging to, to figure out who's who's, who did what, what, where. But here's my question. You know, so on and so forth. Why come it matters? Right. Why, just eat your pancakes. Eat your pancakes. <laughs> eat your pancakes, sis. I'm going to eat my pancakes. I'm going to mine. mine. If you want to pay for this meal, and we have a conversation. If you offer to pay for the meal, then we can have a whole separate <laughs> conversation. However, you enjoy your pancakes, I'll enjoy mine, and we can all leave. Yes. It just feels like so much of what we encounter could easily be resolved with that attitude. Yes. Just eat your pancakes. Eat your pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you consider the visual as you and your husband were going through the adoption process? Did you foresee this being something more challenging? Or did you just want children and you didn't care? No, we did not foresee it at all. Like it was not because we with um, with my daughter, we knew the birth mother and 
we, we did know who the birth father was. And so when she was born, we were like, oh, okay, all right. And it was just another layer added. Black women really stepped in and kind of got guided me down this path. All the black women in mm-hmm. my family, all now the aunties and cousins who love my kids dearly, really kind of set me straight on. You need to focus on the health of your baby as the primary. Like that's the first thing. And that was just having that mm-hmm. that reset as we were going through the adoption of like, you know, this, that, how are they going to engage us? How will people, because my daughter was also born in Tennessee. So we had, now here you are with someone like me and my husband in rural Tennessee. Oh, you wanted a challenge. Yes. We, we it was rural <laughs> where everyone went to a big box store. That was the only place, the only thing you could do in town was go to a big box store. Right. And so it's that small of a town. And so mm-hmm. we were very thoughtful as we were moving through that space and what the, what the women in my life really helped me understand was like, you need to solve first for, for health and everything else will be okay and we'll move forward. And so that reframe really helped me to kind of get out of my head a bit. I'll also share a story of another reframe. This is a wonderful blessing of how the universe sends you, sends you people. One day I'm, we're driving, uh, my father had gotten into a car accident. So we were going down to Virginia one, like once a month, almost every two weeks to, to visit him. And one day we're driving and we would always stop at the same Dunkin' Donuts. We would stop at Dunkin' and we would get a cup of coffee to just do the drive home. And mm-hmm. I stop and I see this man walks into the, into the restaurant and he is a chocolate brown man with two very clearly bi- biracial little girls. And I'm standing in line. He's standing in line. We're the only ones in the store. Our kids are all like are all in the bathroom. So our our spouses had our kids at the bathroom. So it's just he and I standing there alone. And I literally said, I felt like God said, I'm bringing you this gift here. You got it. Either you're going to use it or not. And I turned to him and I said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? His kids were like maybe five and six. And I I have a baby. And I said, I can see that your kids are clearly present as biracial. How do you handle it? Because I'm, Hmm. I'm starting to feel so much stress from the visual difference of my daughter and I and how I am navigating through the, these spaces. And what he told me in that, in that moment, he said, you know, this, it never goes away. It is something that he has dealt with every day having them. He talked to me about being, being very thoughtful about when you're alone with them. Yet he also said, tell people just to eat their pancakes. That's what they should do. <laughs> he essentially was like, people just, he said, I've had to learn to let it go. And you're going you're gonna to go on a journey to actually letting it go for yourself. Mm. But it was a gift that gave me the freedom to, as, a, as any new parent does, because again, all dads do have challenges. All dads do want the kids to feel safe. Right. And we're all kind of, you know, worrying about that in our own ways. But that, to get that permission slip to say, let your guard down, it's going to be okay, was just a really good gift. You know, I am so grateful that you had that gift because I don't think I did. I don't think I really let go. And I'm pretty sure I've never really talked about this. So ta-da, here you are. (laughs) Um, I think I was always perpetually being chased by the ghosts of my own upbringing. And not in terms of like what it meant to be gay in my household or even gay in Detroit, but just like what it took for me to survive and what it took for me to, to, to learn how to find peace with who I am as a, as a, black man as a gay man as both and so as a father of a, of a black boy I was always being cognizant of whether or not he was going to be perceived as soft because mm. I understood the ramifications of what that could mean in certain parts of society I wanted to make sure that he um, felt comfortable in certain environments that were hostile, you know, if you weren't comfortable in, in those environments. And what I'm talking about, the hood, yes, I'm just talking about the hood. <laughs> yes. And because I was cognizant of those things as a dad and making sure he was safeguarded against those things, I don't feel as if I actually just kind of let go so that I could just let him just be without these sort of go posts, if you will. And I, I just always wonder if I did right by him because of that. That's a wonderful thought because it, it, it I make it analogous to this and I'll, I'll reflect on that through this story. One of the things I love about the show This Is Us is that you've got three children all born in the exact same day. 
like same time, same, same day. But as we watch them as adults and we watch their journey to, to adulthood, you realize that the three of them experienced their parents so differently, even though they did mm. everything together. And I think there's such a wonderful analogy for humanity. And it, that's another space where I've gotten a gift through content where I was like, I have to let some of this go because I have to be very thoughtful that my traumas, my baggage, my things, some of the, I would naturally lay it on them. And in this case, I have a blonde haired blue eyed daughter. I have a, a chocolate little boy and my son, and I haven't talked much about him, but TJ is, he's now seven. TJ has a very natural gift for the arts and for music. Mm-hmm. And TJ loves the spotlight. Oh, uh, yeah. You got you a little usher. Yeah, a little usher here. So our <laughs> so that combination, as he got older, I started to similarly get very triggered about his safety. Mm-hmm. So I'm very so therefore I get I have been very I'm very methodical of the school he's in, the place we get our haircut, you know, restaurants we go to, when I take him inside and when I leave him in the car. You know, I I have found myself very on edge with even my friends and family about him because, you know, people love to kind of make assertions and assumptions because he loves to sing and dance and people want to project things on him at six. I'm like, well, can everybody just slow down, slow down. He's six. (laughs) Right. And so, but I'm also realizing that that that's also me having these, these memories of the, of the interrogations I would get as a kid from my family about why I was so different and how that landed on me as an adult. So I am trying to mitigate how I then not give him my baggage, but also get shore him up and protect him from the baggage he's naturally going to get because he is he is different than what the model tells you right now. A little black boy should be like, I know it's so it's so complicated. And at the same time, it's not. Because if you just yes. let folks eat the pancakes and you just eat your pancakes, eat the pancakes. <laughs> we can all be full. We can be full, can be full <laughs> happy, have enough sugar in our systems right. to move on to the next thing. All right, that's it. I know talking about the things that we don't like about being gay dads or whatever. Let's talk about the fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. Because honestly, and I tell people this all the time, whether they're queer or not queer, parents are not queer, the I want to be known first and foremost as a father. Mm-hmm. I want to be known as a dad. And the only way I could be known as a dad is if my son is proud to call me his father. And the simple fact that he likes hanging out with me, the simple fact that he'll just text or just call out of the blue with some BS just because he just want to hear my voice. <laughs> it's like the most amazing thing in the world to me. Obviously for you is love at first sight. But I'm curious as to whether or not you feel any disconnect whatsoever because of the adoption process. You know what? I actually don't. Um, Not anymore. I come from a family where all of us look like my mother. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at a picture of of my five siblings, we all look like our mother. Right. So there is a comfort and security in DNA. That, you know, you can walk around a neighborhood and someone, some, you know, an older person from my neighborhood, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I'll be in a store. So I'm like, aren't you the, <laughs> so re- so, the so so. son? Aren't you Jenny Boo's grandson? <laughs> yes, I'm Jenny Boo's grandson. Yes, we all we all look alike. Right. So you so there is a familiarity, a safety, a security yep. that comes with that. And then there are times where and I, I'll, I'll be honest, where because our aesthetic is so different. Mm-hmm. We're like, wow, this is interesting. But what I would say in that in the the fun of it and the joy of it is that I've had these kids that live into that idea that, you know, old Southern folks say, if you feed some long enough, it's going to start, it's going to start looking like you, right? <laughs> we our our brain patterns are so similar. I, I don't think I could have a daughter more like me than Brooklyn. Wow. I, we have created our own sub language in the house. We've created our own our own side eyes. We've created our own looks. <laughs> we throw shade very similarly, um, and so that that is it's. And I'll I'll tell a, a funny story. We were getting ready for Thanksgiving, and my husband walked into the kitchen, and I was on like behind the wall in the hallway, and my daughter's at the sink, and he walked in and said something kind of like corny, and we both turned around and we couldn't see each other. And he said, 
why are you guys making the exact same face at me? Wow. And it's moments like that that, uh, that I realized how unbelievably similar we are. Uh-huh. So even though we don't look alike, I think, you know, in our, our racial background is very different. I literally could not think of a better mini me <laughs> than her. And for me, that's been a really amazing blessing. And, and then for TJ... TJ, I, I often think, I read in a book once that, you know, children are often here to kind of heal you. And I firmly believe that TJ is here to help, like, the little boy that I was get some healing. Because I look at him and I have this opportunity to provide him a safe space for his joy mm. to exude and to be on display and to erupt and grow. And I get to be a part of that. And I experience it. And he makes me have so much fun. Like, I have so much fun with him. TJ is the is the kid that's gonna you know have me running through the rain because he likes fun stuff and that's <laughs> and he, he keeps me super young and so I get to like almost relive some of those things of the kid that I probably couldn't do because they weren't allowed for like little boys to do mm-hmm. in my house with my seven year old. So does this mean then that TJ and Nelson are the you know? The connection or are both kids just closer to you because of the personalities or whatever it happens to be? Mm. No, Nelson and TJ have a really, really strong relationship. They're both heart heavy. They lead, They both lead with their heart. Brooklyn and I lead with our heads. So the two of them, I often watch how they navigate and they now if TJ falls, he runs immediately mm-hmm. to Nelson. He'll run past me. And I'd be like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just standing right here. Okay, right. I'm, I'm actually stronger than him, so I can pick you up more than Nelson can, but it's fine. And then, so he'll run right past me to Nelson. I'm like, all right, whatever. So that is, that is, so they have a really, really, really tight relationship. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go back to the beginning. And I don't mean the beginning in terms of uh, you becoming a dad. I mean, 18 years ago, when you first met the man that would become your husband. It's so funny because it was very, I always often say that Nelson and I story is very serendipitous. I was living in Jersey City at the time and I stayed in, in the area and I was, you know, driving my car up and down Atlantic Avenue because I did everything in New York. All my friends lived in the city. My, some of my closest friends lived in Brooklyn. So I would burn up and down Atlantic Avenue every weekend. And, and my poor little car had aluminum rims and I went to the dealer to get my car fixed because my tire light was on. And he basically was like, it'll be $3,000 to fix your car. And I was like, ooh, I'm like 25 at the time. I was like, mm, that's not going to work. So I'm, gonna, I'm like, I want to stay my butt kind of right here. <laughs> so I decided to stay here. And I said, wow, this is the first Christmas that I won't be home with my family. But I just couldn't, I couldn't get my car fixed and go home. Mm. Like I just couldn't do it. So I went with a friend. I went to, to one of my close friends' house in Brooklyn and spent the 26th with, with her and her family. And then I was driving home on the 27th, decided to stop at Crate and Barrel in Soho um, to look up some, um, to get some placemats in the after Christmas sale. Cause I, again, I, I like stuff. So I was like, oh, let me go get some placemats. I have a new, I have a new condo in Jersey City. I'm gonna spruce up these. I go in and I meet my now husband. He's, it's his last day of work. He was a, he's a social worker. He was a seasonal worker at, at Crate and Barrel, and he was working in the home department. And I walk in, and I was like, I'm looking for placemats. And I found two, 
and he went to the back to give me the other ones. And then when he came out, he slipped me his phone number in between two of the placemats. And so, and then I, I was like, oh, what the hell, what's this? Child, you put it on him. You put it on him. How long did that take? Five minutes? Three? Five minutes. It took three minutes. Ooh. It took three minutes. To my alien superstar, you better right. go ahead with your bad self. <laughs> like three minutes. You got my man so, slipping numbers between your placemats. Come on, I know. It was It was crazy. So <laughs> then um, I left. I go, I go up the escalator, and then I come back down. And he's like, you know, we're, and we're chatting a little bit. Oh, I thought he's gonna be like, and you then, ain't call me yet, right? Right. <laughs> I, I have a cell phone. I'm like, I have a cell phone, man. So then I get home and I call. And we went on a date a couple of days later, and so the our um and this is on December 27th. So our before gay marriage became legal, we always celebrated the 27th as our like mm. anniversary as a, as a day we met. So that was how we met, and then our first date was like New Year's Eve. I went with all his crazy social work friends, like house hopping for New Year's Eve. And I was like, yeah, you guys are weird. You guys are really <laughs> different. I got to meet all his friends, like, wow. our, first, like our first or second date. Um, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. It moved really quickly. Yeah, like, it did. Very fast. I didn't but, bring Steve around my people for a good minute. Right. He'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you had them, you had them locked away in the cut. They were like, "Who's you?" Like, <laughs> Don't you worry about that. That's men in the shadows. I'll let right. you see some light later. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, that is very funny. Who said I love you first? Uh, he did. He did. What was the setting? We were in Boston. Um, I went up to the reaching out NBA conference that was in Boston that year, and um, we just and then you know. That was it. And he told me we won't while we were at um in the hotel. And did you say it back? I were think you like, I did. that's cool? No, <laughs> you, I didn't you say that. Cool. up like good. That, right. go. <laughs> <laughs> like cheers, cheers. No, sure. No, yeah, because I again I'm I'm very heady. So I was kinda like, uh yeah, no, I think I I think I did say it back. I have to ask him. I don't remember. I think I'm sure I did. And I think I did mean it because I remember I had really intense <laughs> feelings. Oh, no. Right? <laughs> did you just say I think I did mean it? <laughs> I think I did. I don't remember. I mean, eventually I got I, there. I, so I got I there. Just... I mean, I can't remember. Like, we're here now, right? We're, we're here now. So. This is us. <laughs> this is us. This is us. <laughs> no, but I, I'm pretty sure I did. I'm pretty sure. I want to ask. We tell our like first date story all the time, but I don't think we've talked about that in a while. My husband and I. Um, our first date was sort of like around the holidays, you know, it's around December and we were both drinking heavily the night we met. And so our details of the night we met continues to move <laughs> and shift <laughs> as we get older. <laughs> I'm pretty sure eventually we're going to meet in Hawaii on the beach right. somewhere. Right. Like 4th of July. Like 4th of July. Exactly. I'm like what? <laughs> so I'm just glad that you can remember as much as you did because yes, yes. I remember seeing him. I remember us talking. I don't remember a single song we danced to. So whenever I see movies where like you know one of the spouses are like going, remember we danced to this one song? I'd be like, you lying. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. You got to stick to the story. You got to create a story, and then you got you guys got to stick to it. And then at some point, and then your brain will make it the truth. So. Now you have this incredible position at BET. Yes. Black Entertainment Television. Oh, yes. When you were brought on, how would you describe, not necessarily the work environment, but the cultural environment in terms of the conversation about LGBTQ plus equality? It's interesting because I came to BET seven years ago now, and I came there to lead their consumer insights group. So by definition, a big part of my job is to represent and advocate for the consumer base that mm -hmm. we are serving. So, and I, at this point I had two kids. So I was very much like, well, this is kind of it. I can't really be in. There's nothing to be, there's no, you know, I'm kind of, it's gotta be it, right? Um, <laughs> and so when I got there, I went on a bit of a, a fact-finding journey. I was like, well, one, you get there and you kind of realize, oh, there are, there are people who, who exist in our community who work here. That's pretty clear, right? And you, you, you kind of see that. Um, I did all my safety checks, like calling people who I knew who had either worked with or around BET to be like, what's the, what's the environment like? But right. for me, it was generally very welcoming, right? It has been over the past seven years, such a wonderful place. I, I tell people it is analogous to me working at a black college. I went to Hampton. Mm. I went to a black college and I tell people, I feel like I am 
it's my homecoming in that way because I literally feel like I work at a black college. You have all this diversity, all the wonderful things about black colleges, the, you know, the love, the joy, the power, the pride that you get from experiencing that I feel that at BET. And you also get all the other things that come with a black college, right? Is the, the intracultural politics that we have to all manage, right? Those are all very present in a group of hundreds of, of people from one cultural space. But for me, it's been nothing but positive. And not only has it been, I came in and realized that a lot of the stories that were told about us weren't, weren't necessarily true about the entire network, but that we were open to change and we were open to growth. And so to be here and work here and help advocate for, you know, um, shows like 20s and, you know, shows like The Oval, where we have all kinds mm-hmm. of characters. So now, if you, if you look at our kind of slate now, I, I'm, I feel very connected to and I feel very um, proud of the fact that I've been involved in from an insights and marketing standpoint, helping to really shape a space now where we have over 20 characters that exist on the spectrum as characters in our shows. And I think that that's such a, that's such a different space. And they're all black. Wow. They're, they're mainly all black. And that's such a different space than where we were, you know, call it, um, you know, even five years ago. But to have this much diversity in the community and black and, and they are all ra- they racially identified as black really shows the progress that we've made. And, you know, it's really, really exciting. Your experience in the black community um, as an openly queer man, how would you describe it? Hmm. I would describe my, my, it's been definitely a journey to find sunlight. The stories that society tells us will push, will try to push you into the shadows, right? And you got to get pushed there. And what I think my, our job is, especially at, at our age, our job was to bring ourselves out of those shadows and like live and live in the sun and live mm-hmm. in sunlight. And that's what, that's what my journey has been. One of my probably proudest accomplishments is that I serve on the board of a nonprofit called Live Out Loud. It's based here in New York City, and we service LGBTQ plus youth um, with about with with in classroom programming. So we go to about twenty nine high schools in the New York City tri state area and do in classroom programming for um, with GSAs, and that's it's such a unique thing to have people where we can bring role models. We bring people who look like them. Um, into their classrooms every month and actually give them programming to help them, you know, be role models and change agents mm-hmm. in the world. And I, I um, as a board member, I like to still go to sessions because that's, you know, it's, it's, it's so amazing. And I'm talking to a middle school and we're on Zoom and we're with a middle school class. So one, I'm like, wow, I'm here with middle schoolers. And one of the questions that they threw to me came from a young man and he said, can you tell me when you came out and found community? And I paused hmm. and I couldn't understand why my brain couldn't create an answer quickly. And it, then it hit me and I stopped it and I said, I want you to appreciate the privilege that you have living in New York City where you make the assumption that coming out in community exists in the same space because they don't. Come through. They don't for many people. For many people, they don't. It didn't for me. You better come fix my life. <laughs> right. I was like, and it was, it was such an amazing revelation to be like, wow, one, this is where our society is. And this is a question he has because he, those two things are connected for right. him because he right. has them. He's in eighth grade and he's out and has community. Right. And so with that, I said, well, you know, my coming out story was one where the perspective that I saw and the, the permissions that I had were extremely feminized men, right? Whether it was, there was, there was a man who cross-dressed on our block, on my cousin's block, and, you know, people kind of thought I was trying to be like him, right? And I was like, I don't know, no offense against that, but I'm also, I'm, I'm also 10, so let's <laughs> chill out there about it, I'm, I'm 10, right? So <laughs> then to the, during the AIDS crisis, I remember my mom had a coworker who passed away. I now learned later it was because of HIV and AIDS, but um, he, I remember they quarantined his apartment complex off, like literally, like almost like there was a mass shooting there. I, re- I remember seeing the tape. I remember all the police and the ambulances and like, no, everyone had to leave. And I, I remember everyone being so sad 
And so there was this idea that if you, especially where I, where I come from, if you were, you were gay, that meant you were going to die. Like people were often coming out to their family members when they were diagnosed. So therefore it was, it was creating a connection that was unnecessary mm-hmm. with like coming out in death. And so for me, my, my journey has been, um, as I try to break through some of that and challenge some of those, those kind of expectations of me, um, some of my saving grace growing up was my father's side of the family, where there is a lot of um, fluidity on my dad's side of the family. So when I went to my dad's side of the family, which is very different than my mom's side of the family. Like on my dad's side of the family, I have what I would consider now a, a trans uncle. Back then, we would go from her name is Crow to his name is Crow. And, but everyone called, everyone called my aunt Crow growing up. Very open masculine presenting lesbian woman right back then and just the gender fluidity that existed her girlfriends would be over you would mm. see her dress in male clothes girl clothes, and, it, and it was just my aunt crow we were just in there eating pancakes that's all we were doing <laughs> there was no there weren't questions i wasn't i wasn't interrogated i think what it did do though was it proved to me early on that there was something different about me and i often tell people tyel's story of his gay experience is that it actually propelled me and, and helped me to expand my horizons of what I thought was possible for myself, therefore allowing me to, when, I, when it was time to make decisions on what college to go to, where I should go to school, what I should major in, I was already so used to being different, I didn't feel this pressure to conform and do what everyone else did. I look back at it now, I look at the life that I live now, I look at the life that my children live now, and I don't know if I were a traditional heterosexual man in the same family, same body, if I would be here right now, I, I don't think I would. Because inside of me, I knew I was different. And that allowed me to say, well, you can be different than other things society says about you. Mm. It harkens me back to a conversation that we were having about BET and this idea that I was talking to, to some colleagues about the idea that many, many people in the black community feel like there's a gay agenda. In the, in the entertainment industry has an agenda to push gayness and demasculate men. And what I tell people, Tyel's gay agenda is, I want you to see representation of people from this community on television in an attempt for you to realize that maybe things that, they, that society has told you about gay people aren't true. So that then you can internalize and say to yourself, Maybe things society told me about black people aren't true, too. That is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely beautiful. I have two more questions for you. And um, one of them kind of takes us back, but I think we need to because this entire season is dedicated to families. And because your children are adopted, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit of what that experience was like for you and your husband, the good, the bad and the indifferent. Yeah, it was our adoption story was wonderfully ended very well. <laughs> well, we were in well, it. I was going to say, it, I mean, it ended well. <laughs> it ended well. The journey in it was was not at all storybook, right? We actually started our our parenting process with my brother and sister. So when I when I moved to Cincinnati, so Nelson and I met in Jersey. Then we moved to Cincinnati with the company I was working for at the time, Procter and Gamble. And we were living there, and at the and my mother had had, re, had recently passed away right before I met Nelson. So my stepdad called me one day and said, "I need you to come and get your brother and your sister because I am kind of at my wit's end with them, and I need you to kind of come and get them." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and so we we literally I called I told Nelson that I I got to go get my brother and sister. I think they're coming to live with us. And you know those moments now when you look at TikTok and TikTok says, "Tell me the moment that um you knew." This person is, um, was, was the one you were going to be with. I think that was one of those moments for, um, for Nelson and I. Because he literally was like, all right, let's go get him. And we hopped in my car, drove to Virginia, packed their stuff in the car, and drove them back to Ohio. And they never looked back. So we, we had them in high school. And we kind of realized that, we, that we, we didn't kill them. Like, we didn't, they were okay. <laughs> they were thriving. They didn't starve to death. We like, we, and we were like, oh, maybe we can do this. So we, we, we originally decided to go through the foster care program in Ohio. So we went through all the classes um, because we thought that was the most you know, economical way 
to do it because we were both kind of early in our careers. And so it was just, it was, you know, that was a factor for us. And adoption is expensive. You adoption guys spent what, north of 50,000? Yes, yeah. yes, north, no, take it north. Um, <laughs> 50, um, that was just on one. But the, um, but then with that, we became foster parents in Ohio. I then got a new job at Johnson & Johnson, moved to New Jersey. And to understand the, the foster care process is state by state. You have to start all the way over again. And I literally said, I cannot sit through these classes again. I would, I would go crazy. So we, um, so we decided to go private. And we interviewed some agencies. At the time, again, not every agency took gay parents. Not, agents, not every agency had experience managing gay couples. But we ended up finding one, and um, we got matched with a, a young mother in February of 2012, and she had the baby on February 22nd. Um, we, were, we, we missed the birth by about 20 minutes. We drove up to Maine where the birth was happening. We drove all night, um, went and got a big coffee, started out at 1 in the morning, and drove all night until um, 7 a.m., and we missed the birth by 20 minutes. Um, fast forward, this young lady said she was... She was, it was her second child. She was, the father wasn't around. He was not available to raise the baby. So she was going to give, give the baby up for adoption. We named the baby. Social worker comes. We do the birth certificate. We're moving forward. We go home that night. We come back the next morning. The baby's not in the nursery. And we're like, oh, where's the baby? They were like, oh, we're running some tests on the baby. So we go to the room where they have our, like our kind of maternity, our paternity room. Mm-hmm. And we're in the room waiting, 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 you know, minutes, hours. And we're like, wait. And then the sinking feeling hit me in there that something was wrong. And then our, our, our adoption agency called us and said that the mother decided to parent mm. the baby. And so I like, you know, marched down the hall to go get this baby. And so I'm gonna go get it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna somehow will it to be true. And I went down, I talked to her and she said, you know, she, the father had called. They talked and she decided that, you know, she just couldn't go through with it. And I, I will, I'll be lying if I didn't think in the back of my mind, I was like, I wonder, is it because we're two men? Right. I mean, that's what I was thinking to myself. Yes. I didn't want to say anything, but I definitely thought, I wonder if she told you everything. Right. So we named this little girl. We, she's there. So we had to pack the hotel up and we drive back. Mm. My God. And, and we leave the state of Maine. We get to the Maine exit sign saying you're leaving the state. And my husband has a full breakdown in the car. Mm. Like, so I have to pull over. And he's like, I never thought we would be leaving the state without a baby. And I have to, and because we, we actually stayed an extra day thinking she may change her mind again. So we like stayed around just like kind of waiting by the phone. Maybe she'll change her, her mind again. So we come home. We put everything in the bedroom that we had taken with us, pack and play, diapers. We put everything in our daughter's room and we closed the door for probably three months. We didn't open it. And it was a really interesting morning, morning experience for us to like mourn that loss and what that felt like and us to kind of work through that. Um, because it's a, it's a baby that I'm not only you, that we held the baby imprints on us, we named the baby. And then it's like 24 hours later, it's gone. And so we, we, we waited, 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 and we, we decided we were going to go and try again. And um, surprisingly, Brooklyn's birth mother found us. She went on the adoption agency's website. She saw our picture, and she said to the agency, I think these are the guys. Wow. And she said, and, and it's funny because she said to the agency, which we found all this out later, that because of the racial makeup of her daughter, and she knew that, that she wanted a sense of diversity. And she could tell from our pictures that we look like a loving couple. So we fly down to Tennessee when we meet her. I'm looking at her eyes. And if there's any signal <laughs> that she is, <laughs> I was like, Girl, I was I'm on 10. I was, all your edges. Whoo, I, was oh. like, it, I was on 10. I was on full 10. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like I, if I am not leaving the state, right, we were very de- determined. So long story short. We got down there and it all worked out. She was, she's 15 and just couldn't take care of her child um, financially. And so we met her, we talked to her. She seemed really, really lovely. We, we talked to her every day for the next few weeks. And then we drove down, she went in labor. We were in Charlotte, surprisingly at Pride. So we were in Charlotte at a party in July. There was like a, a, a promoter, a friend of ours, Lou, threw a party 
we're at the party. We're like, this is probably our last little like event hmm. we can go through. And they called us from the party and said, she, her water broke. So we hop in the car and drive to Tennessee from Charlotte. Oh my God. And we made it um, hours ahead of time. So we got there and we, we sat there for like three hours. Brooklyn came out about 11.30. And then we got her and they moved her right in our room. In Tennessee, there's a whole waiting process. So like the mother can't sign her rights away in Tennessee until three days after the baby's born. Then she gets 10 days to change her mind. So you can imagine it's all a bit of a thing. It's all a bit of a, like, it's a high tense, high right. tense space for everyone. But um, For everyone. But yeah, but right. ultimately, after she signed the papers and we, we waited our three days for it to go into effect, we, um, we started our road trip and we drove back to Pennsylvania, which is where we were living at the time. And then that's how we got Brooklyn. That was Brooklyn's story. TJ was very different. TJ's what an adoption we call Stork Baby, meaning his mother decided at the hospital to give him up for adoption. So she had him. She had been contemplating adoption, but just couldn't make a decision. Had the baby and decided she was ready to make the decision. So we had similarly wanted a second child, had another situation where we had gotten, gotten the paperwork started, because now we're in Jersey, so we had to start all over again with the paperwork. Um, but we went through all that, and because we had all of our paperwork done, and we had our home study done, and our references in, and all the things that the state needs to give a baby to you if a baby comes home, we had it all done. So when, the, when she had the baby, she looked through some portfolio, saw ours, and wanted to meet us. And so they called me. I was at work on a Tuesday. We went to meet her Tuesday night. We took Brooklyn in to kind of close the deal and, like, show her that we, you know, that, that we actually can, that we know what we're doing here. And um, Friday, we came home with the baby. It was, like, that fast. Wow. Yes, two very different experiences, but very eventful. Both ended really well. But it was definitely a journey. Did you guys needed to do any counseling to help you sort of process the first time in Maine? Or did you just work out together? Looking back on it, we, we definitely should have. I think that we should. We, we didn't. And I think we should have. Because I think now knowing what we know now about the benefits of like, you know, short term counseling for, for, for challenges that you're going through and to adjust, we absolutely should have done that. But we did not. We just kind of we were like, OK. It happened. And, and and to be fair, though, I will say this. The adoption agencies, especially when we went through private, there's so much coaching on like, you know, these things happen here, are all the risks that come. And then they were really there for us. The, the agency really like, you know, helped us work through it, helped us understand what was happening, you know, gave us space when we need it. But it was but looking back on it, we definitely should have gone and um you know, saw someone just to process that. I really appreciate you trusting me, trusting the listeners with your story. It's, it's so powerful and it's so remarkable. And, you know, congratulations on just, you know, making it through and, and, and being fantastic parents. And Thank you. I guess my, my, my final question to you to wrap up our conversation, you know, in the event that someone's listening to this this podcast episode and they're thinking about, you know, becoming a mother, becoming a father, through whatever process, um, if there's one question that you think will help someone decide, what should they ask themselves? I think if someone's on the fence about whether they want to be a parent or not, the question I would have them think about is, do they see themselves having the ability to be a part of the change that we actually want to see in this world? I'll give context to that question through a story that has always been a motivator of mine in the adoption process and becoming a dad. I loved watching documentaries. I remember before I even met Nelson, I'm watching a documentary of this case. It was two men who were white. And I remember they had this mixed race daughter. She presented a mixed race. She had red hair and freckles. And she was like 18. And they had been following this family and talking through it. And I remember this 18-year-old girl saying, I know my dads love me. And if I'm ever unsure of that, I am often reminded of all that they did to get me. Mm. And that gives me this assurance that they love me no matter what. And I remember thinking, that's an amazing gift to give to a child. Mm. 
like I think just coming from backgrounds that we all come from and just, you know, we can go into Matt Tyell's story part two later. But, <laughs> but I'll, I'll be remiss to say as a young queer boy that there were times where I didn't feel loved and wanted. And so when this little girl said that, I said, every child deserves that. And I think that if, if anyone out there listening has the idea or thought of being a parent, I want you to remember that story and remember how a child grows up and impacts the world when they are in a house where they feel loved and wanted and what that means for the person that they marry and, and their children and the communities they join and the jobs they work at and the coworkers they, um, they interact with. That energy just brings light into the world. And I, I see it definitely in my children. And I'll be remiss to think that our adoption story and process of how we got them is not a major contributor to them feeling like everything that is here is theirs because they are absolutely loved and wanted. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Tayel, for sharing that story, that wisdom, and your time. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I haven't laughed out loud like this <laughs> in a minute. So thank you just for the joy. The yes. black boy joy I love alone. It. The black boy joy. The black boy joy has been real. We need more, we need more of this. We need a lot more black boy joy. I absolutely love that conversation with Tyel because it was so heavily driven on intersectionality without feeling the need to like divide my blackness from my queerness. And another person who's brilliant at doing that is Stacey Stevenson, the new CEO of Family Equality. They are married to a gorgeous woman, raising gorgeous boys, and yet they're still very much firmly rooted in terms of talking about the racial aspect of life and how being of color can impact you both negatively, obviously, as well as positively. Anyway, the conversation with Tayel led me to think about the other ways in which intersectionality plays when it comes to parenting. And I thought Stacy would be the perfect person to talk about not just the intersectionality and how that plays, but also some of the things that we can all do in terms of being parents or people who have loved ones who are raising queer children, what they can do to protect those families. And so I'm happy that Stacy was able to join us. I stumbled across this quote that you gave a little over a year ago uh, that was in the Philadelphia Gay News. And it just struck me because it was so powerful. And here it is, quote, this isn't about a job for me. This is about survival. Can you explain what you meant by that in regards to you becoming the new executive director for Family Equality? Yeah. You know, it was a a long road to get to Family Equality, a road that I did not know that I was traveling. And if you would have asked me pre-pandemic, I would have told you that I was going to spend my my career in corporate America. And then once the pandemic happened, a lot of things came to light and my my worldview shifted and it shifted so much that I knew that I had to go do something more significant for our community. And it was a realization that what my wife and I went through when we were trying to adopt our boys, what the thousands of LGBTQ plus people who want to create a family go through day in and day out, and then the continued attacks that we were seeing and, and not anything like we're seeing now, it was it's, it's more significant now and then thinking about just my coming out story as a young black girl in South Texas, bringing that all together happened during the pandemic. And I, it wasn't about, oh, let me just go get a new job because this is the new thing. I knew that it was about the survival of our community. And I wanted to be one of the people who were at the forefront using my lived experience and the adversity that I've been through in my life for good and to create a better world for our community. You mentioned uh, in several interviews about family is everything, family is everything. And I, you know, generally speaking, people say that all the time, but you actually moved. You, you mentioned that you grew up in South Texas and Texas is home for you, but you moved your family out of mm-hmm. Texas because you didn't feel like it was safe anymore. Is that correct? That's correct. We moved here August 27th of 2022. And can you explain to the listeners why you moved, especially through the prism of family is everything? As I mentioned, you know, I am a native Texan. My wife is also a native Texan. And we always had dreams of raising our family 
the same way we were raised with aunts and uncles and cousins and having those weekend barbecues and Sunday dinners. That was the, the dream that we had for our family. And we thought that that was possible in Texas. And then the legislative environment started to, to worsen. We started to hear the rhetoric from Texas state leaders and the rhetoric that you hear from the leaders, unfortunately, often cascades down to the masses and you start to hear things that you didn't hear before from your neighbors or the kids hearing things at school. Now, let me back up and say that we always had a, a difficult time navigating as a queer couple raising boys in Texas. The boys always came home and said, well, someone wants to know why do I have two moms or that's just weird that you have two moms or those are not your moms. We, we navigated those types of things, but we thought it was just part of it. But when Texas state leaders began to refer to my boys' moms as abnormal and you know, the promise of a, a don't say gay bill was going to be introduced after the midterms should you know, Greg Abbott win, thinking about all those things and then the continued attacks, we didn't feel safe any longer. And I didn't want to stay around to see what happened. In fact, we moved before, before the midterms even happened. I just knew in my heart that this was not going to be the place to raise my family. It was not the right place to raise my, my black boys anymore. I think the thing that's really kind of shocked me in terms of what you just mentioned, what you talked about in terms of your experience is that, you know, you have two black boys and Texas has the highest population of black people of any other state in the country. Correct. So if you can't have your black boys be safe in Texas, where we are at the most, then, you know, where are you going to and what exactly were the parameters to decide what safety was? You know, the way that I look at it is, Texas does have the highest population of black folks. I don't think that that necessarily translates to black equality. Hmm. Being from Texas as a black person before I ever came out as queer, it was still, again, an environment that was that was really tough, it, and especially when, you know, my parents actually once, you know, they, they made a little bit of money. They thought, look, let's let's move you to a, a, a neighborhood that was majority white. And when I think about what safety looked like for us, we'd been to Washington, D.C. several times. And every time we came here, I saw people who looked like me in leadership. I saw people who loved like me walking down the street. I saw rainbow flags in just the most you know, innocent of places like a Starbucks. You know, in, in, in Texas where we were, you would have to go to where we lovingly call the gayborhood to really see that representation and to feel safe about with holding hands. I feel very comfortable here with just holding my wife's hand just in our neighborhood. And, you know, DC has had a, um, has a very high equality score and has been on the forefront of LGBTQ plus rights for quite a while. This is not new in DC. So we felt all of that. What I will say, though, LZ, what we weren't prepared for, though, is moving from a predominantly white area in Texas to the boys going to a predominantly black school. And there's, I'll say, cultural competency that we have to do in terms of black folks as it relates to when two kids or kids rather have have two moms or two dads. I was not prepared for some of the words that my, my sons heard here in D.C., but overall, we do feel safer here. What were some of the words? They were called the 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 F word. Um, that and I don't know if I can actually say this on your podcast because I thought that that word died in the eighties, but I, apparently it didn't. But I, I think you know which word I'm talking about. Right. We have two black boys who are they don't fit the box, and I often I'm actually writing something now that that called "Don't put my black boys in your black box" because I think we often put black men, black boys in this black box, and you cannot look like or act like or do anything different than this black box, stay in this box. And our boys are very much so different. I have a boy who likes to wear football jerseys and fingernail polish. I have a, another boy who loves football, but he loves talking about his, his two moms. And we let them express themselves and we don't put them in a box. We let them understand that you know the world is to explore and there is not anything that is limiting to you whether you like pink or fingernail polish or whatever that may be and 
the students in this this school, and I'm, and I'm realizing overall, are, are not accustomed to seeing two black boys present themselves in that way and black boys who have, have two moms. My guest, Tyel, and I joke about this, this, this phrase, just eat your pancakes, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, when you see a, you know, a queer family or just any people who walk into a space that you you know, aren't familiar with or haven't been exposed to in the past, instead of, you know, staring or making uncomfortable re- remarks about them, just mind your own business. Just mm-hmm. eat your pancakes if you're in the diner. Just go on your walk if you're in the park, etc. Right. Um, you obviously felt like you couldn't just eat your pancakes in Texas. Like that, just ignoring it wasn't going to be enough. You needed to actively do something. What do you say to those parents, particularly, you know, parents of either queer children, trans children, or parents who are queer or trans themselves, who don't have the privilege of just picking up and moving out of a hostile state? What's your advice to them to help them navigate these environments when they can't just eat their pancakes? It's so difficult, Elsie. It's a great question. And it's a it's a complex question. I believe the first piece of that is to know your rights. And I think the other thing that you have to do is we have to, and I think it's really, really hard. We have to have conversations with the schools. We have to have conversations with the teachers. We have to be open and 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 loud about the protection of our children. And at the same time, I really feel uncomfortable about what's saying that because a lot of people, and I know I've talked to people in Texas, they just simply don't feel safe. But I know that it's not easy to pick up. I know some people there are absolutely stuck. They feel stuck and they have to stay there for one reason or another. So, you know, bottom line is to to know your rights, know what can be done legally and what cannot be done and what is um, threatening, rumors, etc. And have conversations with your educators, have conversations with your school teachers on what you expect, what you expect in terms of your children's protection and your family's protection. And how would a parent or ally who's listening to this find out about their rights? Can they go to your website? Is there any sort of resource you can direct them to? Yes, they can go to familyquality.org. And as it relates to LGBTQ plus family rights, whether that is a the rights about your, your family, current family, or the rights of your ability to create a family, you can find resources on our website. There are still, I have to say, 12 states that, that can actually prevent an LGBTQ plus person in the child welfare system who wants to foster and adopt a child, who can still prevent an LGBTQ plus person from fostering and adopting. 12 states still. We, that's the kind of, kind of information that we have. That is, one, so devastating to hear that there are 12 states that's, that still discriminate based solely upon these reasons. But it's also encouraging to know because when I first was looking at adopting myself as a queer person. My home state of Michigan at that time would not allow it. And today, if I wanted to, I could in Michigan and queer people can in Michigan. So there is progress. Absolutely. There's, there's definitely, there's lots of progress. And what, what, what I will say legislatively, we had a really rough year last year, but there is good news because the majority of the 350 or so bills that were introduced across the country last year, the majority of those failed. So I am encouraged by that when I think about that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that there is good news. And I'm also encouraged by the the rainbow wave that we saw during the the midterms, right? We saw Mm -hmm. a record number of LGBTQ plus candidates win their races. And I'm also encouraged by this idea of bipartisanship. You know, the the Respect for Marriage Act was passed last year, as you know, Mm -hmm. and that was a huge bipartisan victory. So there is good news. And at the same time, we are only days into the 2023 legislative session, and we are already seeing a record number of bills being introduced. This number was 250 last week. It's 290 this week. Even though the majority of those will probably not pass, there's still a cost of introducing those bills. So I don't want to paint a rosy picture, but I want to say that there is good news, but we still have a lot of fighting to do, LZ. Well, I'm definitely glad that I'm in the trenches with you, Stacy. That is for sure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we chat with former professional tennis player Brian Bahaley about all the ways I failed him 
as his big brother. I think it's an interesting choice by you to let me publicly air what I'm disappointed at in you. And I actually really look forward to this. <laughs> there were so many things I didn't tell him about fatherhood that Brian actually wrote down a list of grievances. So the first one, it's for me, is more just your, your general failure. And to me... <laughs> Like, you always had your stuff together, right? You were everywhere, but it was always effortless. You were able to manage it all, and you're a liar. And <laughs> you lie because, like, my life completely changed, and you gave me no heads up. That's all next week on Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Granison is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings, Lakia Brown, Brenda Salinas-Baker, LZ Granderson, Cameron Shatavian, and me. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And a big shout out to Ariel Chester, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. I'm LZ Granderson. I'm a mom of mine. Just, just eat your pancakes. pancakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs>